Let's pray. God, we completely, truly, and utterly owe you our worship. Uh, We are so prone to give our worship to lesser things. And yet the beauty of us joining together every week uh, as as your body is that we are reminded that the highest worship is reserved only for you. All, All worship is reserved only for you. We pray, God, that you would now quiet our hearts as we turn to your word. Uh, We all bring cares and concerns. We bring stresses, anxieties, fears. And we ask in these moments that you would allow us to do what you command us to do in your word, which is to to take our burdens off of ourselves and place them onto you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive now what you have for us. We're going to study your word. Uh, It is a living word. It It is literally the words of life for us. And I pray, God, that as we look at this, that um, it wouldn't be Gary speaking, but it would be you speaking through me, and that you would give these, your people, what they need to hear this morning. We thank you for the hope that's found in you. We thank you for the life that is found in you. We ask that you would do what only the living God can do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning again. Good morning. Happy, happy Holy Week. Uh, I've been, I have been going to church for 40 years, almost 40 years, and that's really hard for me. Um, I have never heard Palm Sunday, like, as talking about your palms, and like when Junior was like, Palm Sunday, that's amazing. I could have gotten so much mileage out of that over the years. So sad that I'm just learning about it now. Uh, Speaking of Palm Sunday, how was the entrance today? Wasn't that awesome? Uh, love, we love our children, and we're so grateful uh, to all of you families who come and, and, and trust us with your kids uh, for an hour and a half every Sunday morning. I know some of you are like, you can have them, you can keep them for longer than an hour and a half, but still, uh, it is a privilege uh, to be able to have these children here in our midst and teach them about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Um, so, we're in Mark today. Mark chapter 11. Uh, 11, 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11. Uh, This is what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ten years, 
They had been there for 10 years. They had been there fighting this war for 10 years. One army encamped on the beach, 10 years away from home, 10 years of fighting, fear, and death. Another army uh, inside of the fortified city. And the war was at a stalemate. No one was able to get an upper hand. 10 years of fighting and no one had seemed to gain any kind of advantage. That is the scene that is set as we enter into Homer's famous poem, The Iliad, about the legendary Trojan War, where the Greek armies had come across the Aegean Sea from Greece to the city of Troy to win back the wife and the honor of King Menelaus. But for 10 years, they have been fighting, and after 10 years, no one has seemed to be able to gain any advantage. The Greeks camped on the beach, the Trojans in their fortified city, back and forth, back and forth. One of the primary reasons that that war was at a stalemate was because the Greeks' greatest warrior had become a conscientious, what's the word? I just lost it in the moment. Objector, wow, that's, that's embarrassing, thank you. He had become a conscientious objector. He had decided he wasn't going to fight in this war. Achilles was the Greeks' greatest warrior, but he had been offended by King Agamemnon, one of the, the brother of King Menelaus, and he had decided that because of that offense, he and his men, the Myrmidons, who were like the special forces of the Greek army, were not going to participate in this war any longer. So he was camped out there on the beach with all of his countrymen, refusing to fight. One day, Prince Hector of Troy led the Trojan army out of the walls of the city to engage the Greeks in battle again, and they were having great success. They pushed the Greeks all the way back to the beach, back to their boats, and they looked as if they might be able to take an upper hand in the war. But just at that moment, out of nowhere, seemingly, Here came Achilles, full armor, his men behind him. They engaged in the battle, they pushed the Trojans back, and they reclaimed the beach and their camp, staving off what could have been a disastrous battle. In the midst of that battle, Prince Hector of Troy recognized that Achilles was engaging in battle, and he went after him. They fought, and Prince Hector of Troy killed Achilles there on the beach. But when they took off Achilles' helmet, what they found out was that it was not Achilles. Achilles' best friend from childhood, his wartime companion, I've said this name like 50 times getting ready for this sermon and I still am not sure I'm gonna say it right, Patroclus, Patroclus, thank you. He had put on Achilles' armor, unbeknownst to Achilles, And he had led Achilles' men into the battle and there was killed. It was the turning point in the Trojan War because Achilles was so enraged at the death of his friend that he re-engaged in battle and, and we know how it ends, most of us know how it ends with the Trojan horse and the city of Troy being destroyed by the Greeks and the Greeks taking Helen back home. It all turned on a case of mistaken identity. Here was someone pretending to be someone else. He was pretending to be someone he was not. And in doing so, he led many men to their death, 
and he himself was killed as well. That war hinged, it's a legendary war, but it's a great story, on a case of mistaken identity. We are pretty familiar with cases of mistaken identity. We are pretty quick, we are pretty quick as people, and this is not a criticism of you, I'm, I'm right here with you, we're pretty quick to judge others, are we not? We are pretty quick to sum up other people and make a judgment about who we think they are, what we think they're about, even though time and time and time again, we are proven to be very terrible judges of character. Over and over again, we look at people and we think we know who they are without knowing the full story. I could cite numerous examples. I suspect there are some of us in this room or watching online right now who feel differently about Will Smith today than we did three weeks ago. Just was different than what we expected. One of the um, most respected and successful figures in the world of finance in, in the history of our country was a man named Bernie Madoff. And it turned out this highly respected, hugely successful investment manager was a liar and a cheat behind the scenes, literally stealing billions of dollars and ruining the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of his clients. Um, I had one more, and I've, I've lost it in this moment. This, we're over two now. This is off to, we're off to a rough start uh, on the Palm Sunday service, so just bear with, bear with your pastor as he, uh, as he fumbles through this. Um, oh, yeah, it was the, it was the worst one. A lot of us took it really personally, and rightfully so, and understandably so, when we found out uh, what Ravi Zacharias, his life looked like after the truth started to come out about like, the difference between who he was publicly and who he was privately. People are not always as they seem on the surface, and we don't do a great job of judging people's character. We think we do, but, but, but things are not always as they seem, especially when it comes to people. One of the things I love about God's word and one of the things I have loved about this long-range study we're in the gospel of Luke or gospel of Mark, wow, gospel of Mark about is that God's word speaks to, when you spend time in it and when you dig deep into it, it speaks to all areas of life. So we've been in this gospel for a number of months and we've talked about everything from like calling, purpose, personal identity to divorce. But there is one central theme that the whole gospel circulates around. There is one nucleus. There is one sun that the entire, entire gospel orbits around. And it is the question of the identity of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Mark and really all the other three gospels about at the heart of it? It is trying to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? What is his true identity? It was the uh, pastor and theologian, A.W. Tozer, who famously wrote once, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the central question that the Gospel of Mark is trying to answer is the question that Jesus poses to his disciples in Mark chapter eight, which is who do you say that I am? And through Mark, the gospel writer, Jesus Christ is asking every one of us, every one of us that question. 
Who do you say that I am? And I do not believe it is an exaggeration to say it is the single most important question we could ever answer. Who is this guy 2,000 years ago riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover festival? We are working through the Gospel of Mark. As some of you will notice, uh, as one, a couple of people already asked me about it this morning. Uh, we skipped over this passage two weeks ago because it's the Palm Sunday passage and I wanted to save it for, for Palm Sunday, so we're backtracking a little bit. But as we come to Mark chapter 11, Jesus, remember in the first, about third of the Gospel of Mark, he and his disciples have been in Galilee and in that region moving about in the middle third of the Gospel. We've talked about this a lot in the last month or two. They are on a mission. They are on the road to Jerusalem. And as we get to chapter 11, they, have a, they are arriving now at the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And, and I'm not, I wasn't a math major, but there are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. We're at chapter 11 right now, so that's six chapters devoted to the last week or so of Jesus' life. One-third of the Gospel devoted to the last week or so of Jesus' life. So the clue there is some important things are about to happen. In chapter 8, as we've talked about a few times already, watershed moment in the Gospel of Mark. It's the first time that someone who's actually Jewish, we've had Gentiles do it, it's the first time that someone who's Jewish actually confesses who Jesus really is when Peter says, you are the Christ. And when we come to chapter 11, we get another watershed moment in the Gospel of Mark. And this time, it is not someone else confessing who Jesus Christ is. Even though on the surface it looks like this is just kind of part of the narrative moving the story forward, what we are going to see, or what I hope I'm going to help us see as we study these 11 verses this morning, is that Jesus is making a very declarative statement about his identity. He is saying in these 11 verses, this is who I am. He doesn't do it with words, he does it with actions. And so as to the question, is the whole thing, is Jesus' whole deal just a case of mistaken identity? Was he just pretending to be somebody he wasn't? Was he like so many other false messiahs who came along in that time? Did a bunch of people follow him to their death? And was he ultimately killed just because he was pretending to be somebody else? If we look to Jesus himself, the answer from the text we are looking at today is not at all. This is, this is not a case of mistaken identity. What we will see in these 11 verses is the return of the king. And that's what I've called the sermon today, the return of the king. We're gonna see three things uh, in this text that I want us to draw out. And the first one is this. Jesus asks us to do unclear things. Jesus asks us to do unclear things. Now, this is not like in the mainstream of the main point I want to communicate today, but I just, it's clear in the text, and I think it's a really good word, and it's something that a lot of us need to hear, and it's a good reminder. Jesus asks us to do unclear things. So here are Jesus and his disciples. They are coming up to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover festival. The Passover festival had been instituted by God when he met with the Israelites at Mount Sinai right after he saved them out of slavery in Egypt. He told them every year, I want you to remember what I did for you in saving you out of slavery in Egypt. It was in the spring. It was, uh, one scholar says, maybe up to 300,000 pilgrims would come into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. They memorialized, they remembered the, the event of God saving them out of slavery in Egypt. Remember, he 
did nine, uh, he sent nine plagues on the Egyptians. The last one and the final one was the worst one when he sent his angel of death into the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn child in every family. But he told his people, the Israelites, if you paint blood on the doorposts of your houses, the angel of death will what? pass over the house. And by doing so, the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed and spread on the the wooden posts of the door, the angel of death saw that blood and he passed over and he spared the firstborn child in that house. And so that's why all these pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem at this time, hundreds of thousands of them coming in at this time for the Passover festival. Jesus and his disciples have been walking for a long time. Remember at the end of chapter 10, they were in Jericho, where he gave blind Bartimaeus sight. Jericho was somewhere, we're not exactly sure about the location of ancient Jericho, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 miles from Jerusalem, and it was about 2,500 feet higher, Jerusalem was, than Jericho. But they didn't start in Jericho, they came from somewhere else, and so they probably have been walking for two, three, four, maybe five days, and as they approached the city, this is what Mark tells us. Now when they drew near, verse one, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, catch the scene. They've been walking for, again, three, four, five, we don't know, six days. They're coming up on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is not like a peak mountain. It's a, it's a ridge line that runs east of the city of Jerusalem, about 300 feet in elevation higher. But it's not a long way away. When you come over the Mount of Olives, and I know some of you were there not that long ago, when you come over the Mount of Olives and you look at Jerusalem, it's like, it's right there. It's not like, okay, eight more miles in the distance is Jerusalem. It's kind of like, all right, like we got 15 minutes. We got to walk down this hill and then we're at the city gates. And so they've been walking for five days, six days, seven days. And they come to the, like, the very last point right before they're about to get to the city. And Jesus says to two of his disciples, I need you to go get me a colt to ride on. And if I'm those two disciples, I'm like, seriously? We've been going for forever. And we're just about to get to the city. And you're like, now is the time that you want an animal to ride on? And oh, by the way, pilgrims to Jerusalem for the Passover festival were not expected to ride animals into the city. Everyone was expected to walk. Even if you took an animal to get there, you were expected to get off of your animal, walk into the city. If you were elderly and couldn't walk, if you were disabled and couldn't walk, you were expected to be carried or literally people would crawl across the city limits in for the Passover festival. So these disciples, I think it's interesting that Mark doesn't name which ones they are, these disciples, if I'm them, I'm like, what are you asking me? What Seriously? Why are you asking me to do this? I, I, it's, it's hard for me not to import my own um, shortcomings as a person into the story. I just don't like being told what to do when I don't know the reason behind it. Right? Anyone? Just me. Okay. So, so you're telling me we've been traveling all this way. Now I got to go off the route. I got to go into this city, this town, village. I don't know anybody there. I, look, it's the end of a long trip. I'm not looking for conflict. I'm not looking, I don't, I really didn't want to steal an animal today. I, I, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not looking, like, this doesn't make sense. Get it? You catch the picture? Yeah, yeah. But they do it anyway, right? Good, good disciples. 
They obey, they go, they find it just as Jesus described. Now here's something I think is funny. A lot of scholars, when they're talking about this uh, incident, they're like, uh, Jesus must have sent word ahead, or Jesus knew somebody in the town and had a friend there, or he had gone ahead of them and set this up. And I'm like, maybe that's the case. Or maybe he's just the king of kings and lord of lords and the creator of everything, and if he wants something, he can take it. At any rate, what he asked them to do was really unclear. It just, it just was confusing. It, just, it didn't make sense in the trajectory of what they were doing, where they were headed, all of that. But they did it anyway. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite movies, which is The Karate Kid. Not the new one, okay? Let's be clear. The, the original Karate Kid. And I know a lot of you will be familiar with this movie. It's a story about uh, Daniel, Daniel's son, uh, who is a, a high school kid who's new in town. Uh, he's, things just stink for him. Kids are making fun of him. Kids are beating him up. He's kind of a loner, doesn't have friends. And, uh, and this old uh, karate master, sensei, Mr. Miyagi, takes Daniel in and promises, makes an agreement with him. He says, Daniel, if you do what I tell you to, I will teach you karate. And Daniel's like, I need to know karate. So yes, this would be great. And the next thing that Mr. Miyagi has Daniel do is for the next four days, he has him sand his floors, he has him paint his house, he has him varnish his fence, and then he has him wash and wax his collection of automobiles. And after four days of this, Daniel, who's already got a little bit of an anger problem, uh, kind of loses his mind. He's like, you told me you were going to teach me karate, and you've just made me do your menial chores for the last four days. And Mr. Miyagi, calm, collected, he says, he says Daniel, Daniel-san, he says, uh, show me wax on, wax off. And, and Daniel goes like this, and then like this. And then he says, show me paint the house. And he goes like this, and like this. And then he says, show me varnish the fence. And he goes like this and like this. And he says, show me sand the floors. And he goes like this and like this. And then Mr. Miyagi tries to hit him. And Daniel goes like this and he blocks it. And he does it again and he blocks it again. And then he tries to kick him and he does this. And what Daniel realizes is that they weren't just menial chores. Mr. Miyagi was teaching him karate all along. He just couldn't see it. He, he, had a, he, was, he was testing his patience. He was training his discipline. He was training his muscles. Do you know how powerful muscle memory is? So that when he got into a fight, the movements were already there. He already knew what to do because he had been training for it even though he didn't know it. Anybody ever feel like Daniel? Anybody ever feel like those two disciples that Jesus sent into the village ahead of them? You ever look at your life and you're like, man, when I decided to follow Jesus, this is not what I thought it was going to look like. Like, 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 God, I thought this was the job you led me to, but it stinks, and I'm miserable. And I, God, I thought this was the school you wanted me to go to, but this has been awful. I thought this was the grad program that you wanted me to enroll in, but this has been worse than I could have imagined. God, I thought this was the person you wanted me to marry, but this has been really hard. God, like, ever since I started following you, my life just feels like, like menial chore after menial chore after menial chore. Well, you just need to hear this morning, take heart because you are not the first person in the history of the world who has looked at their life and said, this is not what I expected it to look like. 
And you also need to hear that that is because God is doing something even when you can't see it. God calls us to do unclear things. It's just the way he works and it stinks because we don't like being told what to do when we don't know why. And so, so often there are gonna be seasons of life where we look at it and we're like, why, am I, why does it look like this? Why am I doing this? Why am I living in this place? Why, why do my days look the way that they do? And you just need to hear that's because God is testing your patience. It's because God is training your discipline. It's because God is building up your muscle memory because he has a plan and a purpose for your life and he may need to train you in something before he actually takes you to what it is that he has for you. Just because things are not clear does not mean that God is not at work and it does not mean that he is not working towards a purpose. Sometimes God just calls us to do unclear things. And here's the thing. God called those two disciples, Jesus called those two disciples to do something unclear so that, as we're about to see in a few moments, so that he could show the crowd who he really was. He needed that donkey so he could show the crowd who he really was. And God may be calling you to do something unclear today because in you and through you, he needs to show the crowds who he really is. Jesus calls us to do unclear things. So that's the first thing. Now here's the second thing, and this is more in the stream of like the main idea of what, what, what this passage I think is about. Jesus calls us sometimes to do unclear things, but Jesus is very clear about who he is. Jesus is very clear about who he is. So the disciples go, they do as he said, they find it as he says, uh, they bring the donkey back to him, they put their cloaks on it, Jesus climbs up on the donkey, and this is what Mark tells us. Uh, verse seven. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means something like, God save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. So they bring him this, this donkey. He climbs up on it, and he rides it into Jerusalem. Now here's the thing, at first blush, when we read this passage, I think it's easy for us to be like, isn't that so like Jesus? Just, just so humble and, and unassuming. Like, he just, just well, what is a donkey, right? He just, he, he's the kind of guy who rides a donkey. And I think like, wow, isn't that great of him? Just, just kind of trying to slip into town, not make a big deal. Nothing could be further from the truth. When we get a little bit of biblical context, and when we get a little bit of historical context, what we see is that Jesus is making an incredibly bold, incredibly provocative statement about who he really is. So here's something that we, here's what we need to see. Uh, one of the great prophecies about the coming Messiah through the Old Testament prophets came through the prophet Zechariah. And he said two things that are really critical. God said through Zechariah, two things that are really critical for the passage that we are looking at today. The first is found in Zechariah 9.9. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then just a few chapters later, Zechariah chapter 14, again talking about the day that the Lord will come. He says this about the Messiah, verse four, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So Zechariah and all the Jewish people would have known this were like, look, the coming Messiah, he's gonna be on a donkey and he's gonna be on the Mount of Olives. And oh, by the way, 
in the ancient Near East. Kings, and this goes back to Old Testament times. Kings rode two kinds of animals. They rode horses and they rode donkeys. And there were specific instances in which they rode each of those animals. So a king rode a horse when he was going to battle. A king rode a horse when he was entering a city that he had just conquered. When he was coming in aggression, when he was coming in opposition, a king would ride a horse. To ride a horse into a city was like riding a tank into a city today. But when a king was riding around his own city, when he was coming in peace because it was already his, a king would ride a donkey. Riding a donkey in that day was like riding in a stretch limo. I don't need to come in aggression. I don't need to come on an, on an animal of war because this is already mine. I'm the rightful king, and so I can come in peace on a donkey. So here's Jesus. There's been a lot of rumors about him. Who is he? he, he, he he's, he's told his disciples, you're right. I am the Christ. And here he is, Mount of Olives, donkey. And oh, by the way, remember, nobody else rode animals into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So everybody, a sea of thousands, tens of thousands of people moving into the city, and here's one guy riding on a donkey. He sticks out like a sore thumb. This is not humble, quiet, fly-under-the-radar Jesus. This is, I am the rightful king coming into my rightful kingdom. This is the return of the king. Uh, this was probably eight or ten years ago. Uh, I was living in Ohio, and I was driving between Columbus and Cleveland. Uh, think about like Highway 1, Big Sur. It's nothing like that. <laughs> A lot of cornfields. Uh, pretty much nothing between Columbus and Cleveland except cornfields. Uh, I had prob I've probably done that drive 300 times in my life. And so you kind of go on autopilot. Uh, but I'm coming back to the Cleveland area from Columbus. And as I'm driving, uh, pretty steady stream of traffic in both directions. Um, and, and after, like, at one point, I looked to the southbound lanes, and I noticed very curiously there were no cars there. Now, there had just been a steady stream of cars uh, my whole drive up to that point, and there were no cars, and then there were still no cars, and there were still no cars, and it was kind of eerie, and it, it was clear something was up. Like, this is not normal. Something's wrong. I started to wonder if I was going to come up on an accident uh, somewhere further up the road, and, and then uh, just a few moments after that, I saw a bunch of flashing lights in the, in the, on that side as I moved up the highway, and that's when I was like, I probably is an accident, but then I noticed that the flashing lights were moving. And so, as they got closer, it was about four or five squad cars, state trooper cars, lights on, and then behind them, there were six Chevy Suburbans, like, tricked out, you know, tinted windows, they weren't regular Chevy Suburbans. Uh, behind them, another four or five squad cars with their lights on, a helicopter overhead, and then maybe, like, a mile behind that, another set of squad cars and all of the regular traffic backed up behind them. Who was that on the highway? Someone said Steph Curry. It was not Steph Curry. <laughs> no one said that. It just was a joke. It, yeah, everyone said it. I don't need to tell you who it was and you know who it was. There's one person in the world that travels like that. The President of the United States. 
Now, I, as I saw that, I had remembered that he was going to be in Cleveland that morning, and so I, 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 it confirmed that that's what, who it was. But even if I hadn't known he was going to be in Cleveland that morning, I still would have known exactly who it was because of the way he was traveling. Listen, there are a lot of things in the Bible that are not clear. Okay? Anyone who gets up in front of you in a church, anyone who podcasts that you listen to, anyone who YouTube preaches that you listen to and says the Bible is really clear, like you need to nuance that. Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's not clear, that's confusing, that we need to study and learn and wrestle with. Why are there 10,000 denominations? Because they don't agree on what the Bible says. But one thing is really clear in the Bible. And that is who Jesus Christ claimed to be. Anyone who comes at you and says it's not clear about who Jesus was or who he claimed to be, it's just not the case. Jesus does not leave any ambiguity when it comes to who he claims to be, when it comes to his identity as it is revealed in the word of God. It is the central question or which this whole gospel is, a, is written around. It's the central question around which all of the gospels are written around. And here's something, I, I'm, I'll just take it all the way. It's the central question around which the whole Bible exists. Right. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the rightful king and he is the one who 2,000 years ago rode into Jerusalem on a donkey because he was like, I can come in peace because I am the rightful king coming to my rightful kingdom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to the Father except through him. Jesus is very clear about who he is. And because of that, because he is so clear about who he is, the last thing I want us to see in these verses that we're looking at today is this. Uh, Jesus is very clear about who he is. And therefore, he clearly demands a response. Jesus clearly demands a response. So Jesus gets up on the donkey. He, he, he goes in with the crowds into Jerusalem. And I know I've read it already, but let's just read it again, starting in verse uh, 8. And they spread their cloaks on the road. And they spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What is happening? The crowd is responding. They see the Mount of Olives. They see the donkey. They see the blind have been given sight. They see the deaf have been given hearing. They see the lame have been made to walk. The sick have been healed. The storms have been calmed. They see that the dead have been raised to life and they get it. They put two and two together and maybe they don't totally understand everything that's happening in the moment, but they get it far enough to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because what Jesus did in that moment demanded a response. But it's not the only response he got because as we're gonna see in the coming week and the, the weeks after that, as we continue to study what happened in between uh, the pat in between Good Friday or Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday is that there was another response. The religious leaders, other people, they didn't, they didn't pick up what he was laying down. They didn't believe who he claimed to be. And so just five days after this, there's going to be another crowd. Might be some same people in the crowd, might not, but there's going to be another crowd and they're going to be chanting something else as well. But this time it's not Hosanna. This time it's crucify him. Because Jesus clearly demands a response. 
When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, now listen, I got this from Tim Keller, so if you, like, for those of you who are like, I love to listen to Tim Keller podcasts, if you're listening to him preach on a Good Friday sermon and you're like, wow, I think he got that from Pastor Gary. He didn't. I got it from him. (laughs) When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was saying to the crowds, crown me or kill me. Crown me or kill me because I am being very clear about who I claim to be. And I demand a response. Not because he's mean, not because he's pushy, but because of the, the audacious claim that he makes to be the son of God, the coming Messiah, the savior of the world. We cannot just take that and set it to the side. We have to deal with it. He demands a response. And there's maybe no quote that captures that more than one I've used several times in the past, and you can just get ready for it. I'm gonna use it again in the future because I think it's the best one there is, and it comes from C.S. Lewis. It's from his book, Mere Christianity, and this is what he says about the very thing we're talking about. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman and something worse. You can, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What is he saying? He's saying you, you can't look at Jesus. You can't look at Jesus as he is revealed to us in God's word and say, uh, I'm not so sure about some of it, but you know, he had some really nice things to say and I love that he's about love and I wanna be about love and he's a good example for us to follow. That's not an option. What C.S. Lewis is saying, I think he's hit the nail on the head is there are three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he's a crazy man, either he is evil, or he is who he says that he is. And that's hard for us. Why? Because if, because if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is Lord and God, then what that means is all the stuff that we have been studying for the first 10 chapters of Mark is true. And so for Jesus to be Lord and God, and for us to admit that he is such, and, and choose to follow him with our lives, does not mean that we just check a box that says Christian and go back to living the way we always have. It, 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 it does not mean that we just get a, a get out of hell free card and then we go back to living the way that we always have. If Jesus is Lord and God and we choose to follow him, everything that he has talked about discipleship being is going to be true for us. Everything that he is about, sacrifice, suffering, dying to self, that is going to have to be true for us as well. If we are going to throw ourselves at his feet and call him Lord and God, it means that we are going to have to pick up our cross daily 
It means that we are not going to be able to live for ourselves anymore. It means that life is not about getting mine anymore. Life is not about building my kingdom anymore. Life is not about finding my best life now anymore. It is about being called into service for the king. It is about living for something bigger and greater and more meaningful than ourselves. But it is about sacrifice and suffering because that is what Jesus Christ was about. If he is Lord and God, then that means he is the rightful person to sit on the throne of our lives. And that means we have to get off the throne. (laughs) He clearly demands a response. And it's not an easy one. Uh, I'm gonna invite the worship team back up as I get ready to close. So, So what happened? on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago? Was it a case of mistaken identity? Did Jesus Jesus put on somebody else's armor and go out there and pretend to be somebody else, lead a bunch of people to their death, and end up dying himself because he claimed to be somebody he wasn't? Or was it a case of he is exactly who he says he is? And that's why people were willing to die for him. And that's why he died himself. Listen, if we are going to throw ourselves at his feet and call him Lord and God, there will be a cost. There is a, there is a cost to discipleship. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It is not the pathway to health, wealth, and prosperity. But that cost is so worth it. In fact, I would say we can't afford not to. Because even though there is a cost, if we are going to throw ourselves at Jesus' feet and call him Lord and God, there is also an incredible gain. Because we will find in this life hope, joy, peace, and purpose that I will tell you cannot be found anywhere else. And not only that, but we are promised to spend eternity in his presence. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God, especially for those of us who've been in church for a long time, um, things like like Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday, uh, we become common. They, They become something that we've celebrated over and over and over again. And yet, God, I ask that just this morning, the reality of what you did 2,000 years ago on this week would would fall afresh on us. Uh, God, help us to see you for who you are. We we are constantly trying to put you into boxes and and, and keep you in certain areas of our life, but but you are the God who, who overwhelms every area of life. You are the rightful king coming to your rightful kingdom. And that wasn't just Jerusalem, but it is our lives and our hearts. And so we ask God that you would ride into our hearts today and that you would take over what is rightfully yours and do what only you can do. When we try and clean things up, all we do is make a mess. But you can give us life and life everlasting. Thank you for who you are and thank you for what you have done. May it change the way we live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to continue our worship now with a, with a song of response. This is a time for us to continue worshiping God. It is a, it is a moment uh, for you to do any business with God that you might need to do. Uh, if you need to speak to him about anything that the Holy Spirit might have been prompting you to, uh, now is an awesome time to do it. If you don't know Jesus Christ as the king of your life, if you are still sitting on the throne of your life and you're like, it's just not working, I would like him to take the throne. There's no better moment than right now to tell him that. I would love to talk to you. Myself, one of the elders, one of our ministry leaders, anyone would love to talk to you afterwards about what that means and, uh, and how we can help you move forward from there. Let's worship and I'll be back up to close the service. Let's stand together and sing this one more time. Jesus, you're wonderful. Jesus
again hope that we can see many of you here on Good Friday uh, at 5 o'clock. I'll receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. You are loved and you're prayed for and you're sent. Amen.